its day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 stands as the introduction to Psalms, and it tells us what the rest of the book is about. And uh, it was specifically put there to introduce the other 149. Uh, Some count Psalm 1 and 2 as being together, but uh, for some reason nobody wants 149 Psalms, we want 150. So uh, we we keep it that way. Today we're going to do Module 2, Session 10, hopefully not Session Sin, that would be bad. And we're going to look at Psalms today. I honestly, we could take a whole semester on this. Um, As much as I would love to do that, we have uh, the other 65 books of the Bible to do as well. So we're going to look at Psalms today, and uh, we got slides on their way. All right, uh, Module 2, Session 10. So uh, this is a a unique book, obviously. It is the longest book in the Bible, and one of the things that we'll uh, get out of the way right now is that it is more appropriate to call uh, the Psalms Psalms, not chapters. Um, if somebody says Psalm chapter 5, that's fine, and they're not, they're not a heretic or anything, but they're not chapters. They're songs. That's what psalm means. They're individual uh, songs, and so uh, it's better to say uh, Psalm number 4 or Psalm 7. They're not chapters. It's not a story, um, so to speak. But we'll look at, there is kind of a, uh, there is kind of a structure to it a literary structure, which we'll look at in just a moment as soon as we get the slide up here. Um, I'll just do some introductory stuff that won't uh, be hard for you to catch up on. The, uh, the word psalms uh, comes from the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so it means songs that are accompanied by plucking of strings. So that's, it's a song that's accompanied by instruments. And so... Uh, Really, the word Psalms focuses more on the use of the book than it does on the content. And so, uh, interesting, it's a very functional uh, title. We'll do another title in a minute, but while they're messing with that, we need to pray anyway. So, it is? Oh, great. Well, then then I'll just keep turning around. Uh, I forgot to pray, so let's pray real quick. Our Father, we thank you. Uh, this book is, it is a, a, a pillar in our lives. What would the Christian do without the Psalms? What would the Bible be without the Psalms? It is the center and the heartbeat and the core of our Bibles. It is the place we run to when we hurt. It is the place we run to when we're filled with joy and delight. The Psalms give words to the praises of our hearts. The Psalms give us words when we lack them. And so I pray that this morning, Lord we would have an even higher view of your word and that we would enjoy and, and relish the fact that you have given us 150 spirit-inspired songs with which to express everything from lament to praise to joy to delight in you. We thank you for the theology of the Psalms. We thank you for the hope found in the Psalms. We thank you for Christ in the Psalms. And we pray that this morning would be useful to us and glorifying to you. Amen. So the Septuagint, 
LXX, if that's what you see. Nope. It's, uh, it says Septuagint there. My notes LXX, which just stands for 70, uh, because there were traditionally 70 men who did the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, the Hebrew title, Telachim, just means praises. And so that's more, the Hebrew title is more uh, about the content. Um, now, here's some irony for you. It's ironic that uh, the Hebrew Bible calls it uh, Telachim, but there are more verses of lament and sadness than there are of praise in the Psalms. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Uh, the good news is, is that almost all of the, the laments end with praise. And so we're thankful for that. Um, just so you know this, um, you'll see in your Bible, in many of the Psalms, um, superscriptions. For example, Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. That is part of the inspired Hebrew text. That's not something that, that, uh, that the publisher added to the Bible. Okay, that is part of the inspired text. And in fact, uh, it's a little confusing if you compare your English Bible with the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, the superscription is verse 1. And so all of our verses are going to be one off uh, from that if you're making a comparison. But they are part of the inspired text. And so uh, when we read Psalms aloud in church, if you wonder why we read the superscriptions, because the Holy Spirit inspired them. And so they're there uh, as part of the, the inspiration of Scripture. There are multiple authors to the Psalms. Um, generally, when we think of the Psalms, primarily we think of David as the author, but he authored just under half of them. 73 Psalms are authored by King David. So obviously, though, uh, he is the, the primary author of, of Psalms. Uh, Moses authored Psalm 90. Solomon Two psalms, Asaph, 12 psalms, uh, the sons of Korah, not the guys from Australia, but the, uh, the, the worship leaders, 10 psalms. Heman and Ethan were brothers, Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. Psalm 88, uh, often called the saddest psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms because it proves that the Holy Spirit knows precisely what being in darkness and despair is like because the, psalm, the last word of Psalm 88 is darkness. And so it proves to us that, that God knows. And so we have uh, at least those seven authors. Which puts the dating of the Psalms, very interestingly, almost over a thousand year period. 1410 BC, roughly in there, would be Psalm 90, written by Moses, all the way to about 450 BC. Psalm 126 is probably the last one that was written. So over the course of time, uh, the Psalms were put together, and uh, we'll talk about the structure of it in just a moment. So this is, the, this is the only book of the Bible that really is written over that lengthy period of time, which is one of the reasons we don't like to call, it, uh, call them chapters instead of Psalms, it, because we want other books to have chapters because it's one story written by one author. Um, but this is many different songs in a compendium uh, put together. That does not... Uh, take away a little side issue here that doesn't take away from the inspired nature of psalms <clears throat> if we say for example that deuteronomy was probably written by uh, 10 different men over a thousand year period what does that do to deuteronomy well it blows it up as a legitimate book because now how can it have any sort of continuity how can it have any sort of inspiration when it was written by many different men and in fact that's a major theory that's out there but it's it's fairly new in the last 150 years but that messes up Deuteronomy. That doesn't mess up the Psalms. 
because you simply have this compendium now of all these inspired songs, which is actually, I, I think, wonderful. It means that um, the, the culture and the expectation and the joy of worshiping God is not something that was restricted to one time period. It's over a thousand years. And so that clearly provides precedent for us. So let's look at some of the historical and theological themes. We would put it at the very top of the list, the sovereign God. The sovereign God. I, I know we can easily say that God is the theme of every book of the Bible, but in Psalms, uh, he is particularly uh, highlighted. You can, you can come up with a pretty complete and exhaustive theology of God, theology proper, from Psalms alone. You can find every known attribute of God that we're aware of in Psalms. You have, just as an example, you have God as the God of creation in Psalm 74. Uh, interestingly, uh, God is said to be the God of creation multiple times in the Psalms. Even those who say they don't believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are literal, but then love the Psalms, they have a major problem because Psalms believes that Genesis 1 and 2 is literal. And so you're, you want to get in an argument with, with the Psalms, you're going to lose that argument. Not only is he the God of creation, he's the God of Israel. Uh, for example, Psalm 105 um, a tremendous love for Israel. Psalm 105 gives a, a, a history of Israel. He's also the God of the Gentile nations. Uh, Psalm 33 is one example of that. And you have uh, these examples of uh, the Lord not only loving Israel, but loving the Gentiles as well. He is the God who will establish his rule on the earth. Uh, Psalm 2, one of two places in the Old Testament where God is said to laugh. And what is God laughing at? He's laughing at, uh, at wicked kings who would, who would rail against God. And he, uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so God, clearly sovereign, clearly in control, which is probably one of the reasons that we find such comfort in Psalms when we're hurting. Because we go there and we find a God who is so utterly in control of everything that we have no reason to, uh, to fear. Then you have the theme of the people of God. And they are most often in Psalms called the righteous. Now, does that mean they're actually righteous? No, let's put our New Testament understanding, not that it changes the Old Testament, but it adds to our understanding of the Old Testament. We would call the righteous those who have uh, what we understand as imputed righteousness, that they are seen as righteous by God, they are credited with the righteousness of God, and therefore they act in a righteous manner. But it's not the other way around. It's not that they act in a righteous manner, therefore God credits them with righteousness. So the, um, as we've said many times before, the righteous in the Old Testament were made righteous the same way the righteous in the New Testament are, by faith and faith alone. But they are called the righteous. The enemies of God. Another theme, most often called the wicked. And we'll get to this in a minute. But we, we do wrestle with uh, some of the prayers in Psalms where David says, Lord, would you take a steamroller and go over the wicked? Would you take those who have come against me and throw them off cliffs and, and mangle them and, and do terrible things to them and kill them? And I will laugh when my enemies die. And we go, how does that fit? You know, when Jesus said, love your enemy. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But the enemies of God, a major theme in Psalms. You can't get away from it. 
uh, one, speaking of the group Sons of Korah, the first time they came to Grace Bible Church, my favorite psalm that they do, all they do is, is, uh, is sing psalms. My favorite psalm they do is Psalm 94. It is an imprecatory psalm that says God is taking over the earth. He is going to crush his enemies under his feet. And when they came uh, the first time, I, I said to them, I want you to do Psalm 94. It's my favorite. And uh, Matt, the leader of the group, he said, now, do you understand what's in Psalm 94? <laughs> and I said, yes, we do. And we understand that because I, I, I preached on the imprecatory prayers of God before uh, uh, the imprecatory prayers of Psalms, rather, before they came. And it's just, uh, and the way they did it, too, was so right for the text. But uh, the, the enemies of God, major theme in psalms which is one of the reasons there's so many laments because it's not just that that the righteous are lamenting uh that i have cancer or lamenting that life is hard or that i can't pay my electric bill primarily what the righteous are lamenting is the fact that the wicked are thriving that's the that's a major part of the lament then you have the theme of god's attributes made known to his people and i said a moment ago that you could form an entire theology proper from psalms here's just a few of the biggest uh, attributes of god his loyalty that he is loyal to those that he saves um, another reason that psalms is so so comforting to us that we see uh, you know the lord is my shepherd i shall not want god is god is loyal to those that are his sheep um, his goodness we see all over psalms <clears throat> pondering the goodness of god thinking on the goodness of god his faithfulness, if he's loyal and good, then faithfulness just naturally follows. His righteousness, Psalm 5, speaks of leading us into the same righteousness that God has. His compassion, one of my favorite verses in Psalms, Psalm 4, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down in sleep I'm sorry, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. How compassionate is that, that God cares about you having a good night's rest. Then you have David and the Davidic covenant. This is kind of all over the place, but Psalm 78, Psalm 89, Psalm 132 are the major uh, themes concerning David and the Davidic covenant. And you really can't get away from that. You cannot interpret all of Psalms apart from the Davidic covenant. Um, and in fact, um, some commentators and interpreters would say that the Davidic covenant is the major theme of Psalms. Why would, why would they say that? Well, because so many other Psalms point to a Davidic king who is yet to come, who, who is the end product of the Davidic covenant, and that is Christ the Messiah. So uh, David and the Davidic covenant, you can't separate that out. Now, um, <clears throat> when we get to the, the, next, the next slide is the purpose, and I'm not going to show it to you yet. Because I want you to get one thing in your brain right now. Psalms is not merely a book of hymns. It is not merely a book of comfort. It's not merely a book of poems. It fits into the narrative of God's plan. It does fit. While we don't say chapters, it is in the Bible as part of the narrative of God's plan because the major, major thrust of Psalms is waiting for what? For the kingdom of God. So here's the purpose of Psalms. The, the righteous pray to and praise Yahweh as they await the coming of God's kingdom. 
So this is a, a massively theologically important book. You, you cannot say, well, I don't really believe in the coming of the kingdom of God, but Psalms gives me such comfort. You cannot say that. The Psalms and the Davidic covenant, the coming of a messianic king after the line of David, the coming kingdom, they're all mixed in together. And you really can't read Psalms outside of that. Uh, you, you can't take the dozens and dozens of times that... Um, Psalms talks about Israel and say, well, that's really talking about the church now. You can't do that because, no, it's not talking about the church. When it talks about Israel, it talks about Israel. And so the the coming kingdom, uh, Psalms is kind of our um, way to wait for the coming kingdom. And just as an example, you get the great comfort of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And that feels very present day. It feels very much like a comfort that we want right now. But how does Psalm 23 end? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does that mean? The house of the Lord isn't just speaking of a place. It's speaking of a, of a concept that when all of the earth is the house of the Lord, that's where I'll be. So you get this immediate, uh, or at the end of 23, you get this eschatological look forward well what happens right after that in psalm 24 david asserts the ownership of the earth the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein and so at the end of 23 you get the eschatological focus looking forward i will dwell in the house of the lord forever psalm 24 starts that um, the earth is the lord he owns everything and all of a sudden you get down to verse 7 Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And so then it just gets even more overt, more obvious, that the Psalms are pushing this forward toward the kingdom. And so uh, you cannot get away from the kingdom focus. And, and I think if you, if you try to separate Psalms from that, if you try to go to Psalms purely for an emotional boost, you're going to start cherry-picking and you're going to say, well, I, I like Psalm 4 because it tells me to lie down and sleep in peace. Um, Psalm 24 isn't as comforting to me because it's just talking about uh, all the gates and the doors of all the cities of the earth welcoming the king of glory. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the best boost that we need? Whether Psalms gives you that emotional instant boost or not is irrelevant when you think that someday and this is a metaphor that all the gates of the earth, all the doors of the earth, as if they have heads, are looking up and seeing the king coming to come through them. And so uh, so we don't want to separate the kingdom focus from Psalms because that's our greatest comfort. Our greatest comfort is no matter what happens now, the king is coming and all will be made right. So that purpose is hugely important. Uh, I would urge you to read the Psalms with a kingdom focus. Um, and you don't have to separate it out. There, there is a school of thought that says, well, if you read it with a kingdom focus, it doesn't do you any good now. Really? Then why is one-third of the Bible kingdom focus? Why, why do we have the book of Revelation that is almost all future from chapter 4 on? So I think reading with a kingdom focus that is future is your best bet for the present because you reach this point where nothing else really matters. And you, you long for that kingdom. So I, I urge you to read Psalms always with the kingdom lens. And I think you'll find it uh, that much richer. Not just looking for an emotional boost somewhere. Literary structure. It does have a structure. 
It's divided basically into five books. And they are based on the theme of, guess what? The kingdom of God. They're all based on the theme of kingdom. Each book ends with a psalm of doxology and praise. It it ends with a, a big note of praise to God, looking to him and him alone. Psalm 1 and possibly Psalm 2 together. And Psalm 150, the very end, they're, they're written specifically as the introduction and the ending to Psalms. And you can see this is very obvious. I already read Psalm 1 to begin, but it talks about what we're doing in this life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's, that's our life now. We're like a tree planted by streams of water. And then where does it end? The book end of Psalms. Um, and, and there's a little fact in here that are, it's often overlooked. But Psalms ends with praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord Praise the Lord. I mean, what a terrific exclamation point on the end of Psalms. What's the little fact we often miss? This is eschatological in nature. Praise God in his sanctuary, in his mighty heavens. Everything that has breath is praising the Lord. That's not happening now. That's something that will happen in the future. And so uh, every book all five of them end with that sort of doxology and praise, but that one is, is kind of really the, the highlight of all of them. You have book one. It deals with the exiled king expecting the kingdom. Psalm 1 through 41. The exiled king expecting the kingdom. You have, uh, for example, uh, Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. David is, becomes the, the, the type of Christ where he, David is kicked out of his own city. He's not, he's not ruling even though he's the rightful ruler. Well, what does that point us to? Christ is not ruling on the earth right now, but he is the rightful ruler and he will be returned. And so it deals with the exiled king expecting the kingdom. Book 2, 42 through 72, has much to do about the ideal king that he is yet to come. Uh, Psalm 42, for example deals with this desire. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Well, what do we want to say when the question is asked, where is your God? Our answer is he's coming. He's coming. And so, Book two deals about the isle, the ideal king. He's yet to come. Book three, 73 through 89. The pure in heart hope in God, even when the kingdom seems to be faltering. That we still hope in God. I, I don't know. I, I've almost just stopped reading the news. I feel a certain obligation as a pastor to sort of know what's going on in the world. But it's the worst part of the week to, to read the news. You're like, I feel like I'm reading the news in uh, Nazi Germany in 1933. That's what it feels like. Like where history is repeating itself. 
But book three says that we hope in God even when the kingdom seems to be faltering. Psalm 77, one of my favorite psalms. It's just this, it's like this psalm of depression. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In my day of trouble, my soul refuses to be comforted. I moan, my spirit faints. I'm troubled, I can't speak. And then he gets really depressed. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, like back in the good old days when God was faithful. But then he says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember his wonders of old. And all of a sudden, um, Psalm 77 shifts completely to total victory. And it ends uh, with these memories of all the ways God has been faithful in the past, which tells us what? That he will be faithful in the future. And so book three, the pure in heart, hope in God, even when the kingdom seems to be faltering. Then you have book four, Psalm 90 through 106, major theme is Israel in exile. Psalms 93 through 99 are, are really the, the key psalms there. And, and this is where you have some of this, like, for example, 94. Uh, o Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? This is a, a hopeless people in a hopeless situation crying out to God to do what is just and to do what is right. Israel in exile. And then book 5, 107, Psalm 107 to 150, we would call these post-exile, post-exilic uh, psalms. For example, Psalm 126, uh, restoration has taken place, but it's still incomplete. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so there's this post-exile joy. And in Psalm 127 and 128 about building your homes, building your household, building your family in a place of peace now. But is that complete? Well, obviously it's not. The Israel of today is not the Israel of Psalm 126. Israel of today is an unsaved nation that God still loves, but is desperately trying to defend its own right to even exist. And so while you get the, the restoration theme from Psalm 107 on, it's still not complete. And you don't really get that sense of completion until Psalm 150, praise the Lord in the heavens. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Let everything that has breath, meaning that now everyone who is alive on the new heavens and the new earth is saved. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So... Um, so there is a literary structure and it goes through the theme of the kingdom. It is the story of the kingdom. And, and I, I love that. Um, I know this is hard to do, but if you can sometime, at least once in your life, sit down and take an afternoon and at least skim through all of the Psalms in one sitting. And what you will find is you just read the story of the Bible. 
you just read the kingdom story all at once. And it's so good for us to do that and not get uh, caught up just merely in the details. So there's the literary structure. I know some of the books we do, literary structure is like, well, that doesn't make much difference. Psalms, it's a big deal. It is a, it is a very big deal. Now, there is, uh, there's one major interpretive issue in Psalms that I want to deal with. And that is the imprecations in the Psalms. The imprecatory prayers. Imprecation is simply a word that means a spoken curse. A spoken curse. You have 98 verses in 32 Psalms that basically call down horrible things on wicked people. Uh, Psalm 58, for example. I'll do Psalm 137. It's, It's a little shorter. Psalm 137 by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. From there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in the foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now what are you doing with this? Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What do you do with that? Are you going to read that at Thanksgiving to your family? That's a tough call. So what... Do we make of those? There are several options. Are they evil emotions? Would we take Psalm 137 and say, well, that proves that the Psalms even are written by sinners and they're just expressing the most wicked, base desires of their heart. And to be fair, we've all had those desires, right? Somebody that has particularly irritated you in life, you just think, man, just one meat truck in four seconds and all this could be... So much better. Jesus called that a murderous thought. How is that different than an imprecatory psalm? How is that different than an imprecatory prayer? So is it an evil emotion to be avoided or expressed or relinquished? We would have to say no because the psalms don't make that clear. Now, suddenly, if these are just evil emotions, we're having to sift through the psalms and say, well, this part is inspired, but this is this guy just being a jerk and we don't want to do that. And so we we would say, no, they're not evil emotions to be avoided or expressed or relinquished. These are psalms inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are the words of God. Others would say that this is sort of for the Old Covenant, that it's consonant with, it's, it's similar to Old Covenant morality, but inconsistent with the New Covenant. So what do we mean by that? Well, those who have this understanding would say, well, uh, in the Old Covenant, it's life for a life and tooth for a tooth and eye for an eye and all of that. But we don't do that now. It's just love your neighbor. The major problem with that is that you have just said that the character of God has changed. You've just said that God has softened, that God has now become uh, different, uh, that God has uh, now redefined himself. There's a whole school of thought that says that Jesus Christ is the improved version of the Old Testament God. And we wouldn't say that at all. Um, we, don't, uh, we don't pray 
in the church, for example, we don't pray for God to uh, destroy our covenant theology brethren because we're right and we're dispensational and all that. We don't, we don't pray for that. There's different means now. In the Old Testament, you do have the death penalty, for example, in Israel. But why is that? Because it was a nation. It was a government. We don't have the death penalty in the church because we're not a nation. We're not a government. We are the people of God spread out over the whole earth. But we do have church discipline. We do have turning people over to Satan. We do have separating them from the body as ought to be. So can we say, well, in the Old Testament, the righteous prayed for the death of their enemies. In the New Testament, we don't really do that. Think again. What is the most violent book of the Bible? Give you a hint, it's not found in the Old Testament. It's the book of Revelation. And I'm going to show you a prayer in just a minute of New Testament saints. We'll see what you think then. So can we say that, well, the Old Covenant was a lot more violent and bloody, and, and that's why they prayed those prayers. That's all they knew. Um, and we're much softer and gentler, and, and uh, we know differently now. Nope, can't say that, because that says God changed. It says that the justice of God is softer. says that the holiness of God is less important. And it says that the grace of God has improved. And we can never say that either. Is it an expression of the divine curse? Genesis 12, 3. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is it an expression of the divine curse? Uh, that, we may be getting a little bit closer to that but i don't see that in the psalms david saying well because of the abrahamic covenant i'm praying for this curse on others i think the best we can do is i think our best interpretation is that these sorts of prayers are appropriately uttered only by christ and his followers they're appropriately uttered only by christ and his followers and i want to give you a new testament example Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, and they're not on the earth, they're in heaven. We always think, oh, in heaven, everybody's, everybody's perfectly happy, and, and we have our harps, and that's all we're thinking about. That's not what's happening. They cried out with a loud voice, the martyrs in heaven O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We know that's a heavenly prayer because they're in heaven. We know it's a perfect prayer because they have been perfected. But it is a cry for blood. It is a cry for justice. It is a cry for, for God to take vengeance because God alone can do this. So how do we, how do we interpret this in our lives? Well, first of all, I think it ought to cause a little bit of fear. Don't find yourself on the wrong side of this issue because God does discipline Christians even unto death. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us this. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. Um, I heard a story just this week of an elder in a church who was being particularly difficult and others were trying to confront this and he flat out said, no, I'm going to do things my way and he leaves an elders meeting and drops dead in his house. I don't know why, but uh, all the other elders in that group had an inkling why. And so the first thing inside to do is, is put a little fear in us to not be found on the wrong side of this issue. Because even as believers, God will discipline you, yes, unto death. And so that, that provides a little bit of impetus for holiness for us. 
But ultimately, if we say, well, Christians are compassionate and we should just hope and wish that everyone is in heaven and all the wicked are, uh, are all together and, and changed. I understand that thinking, but that's not God's thinking. God has chosen some to be saved and others by their own wickedness have aligned themselves with God's will in that they will never come to faith. Uh, there's no such thing as a person who says, well, I wanted to be a Christian, but God wouldn't let me. God didn't choose me. That person does not exist. Every person who is, who is reprobate, every person who is judged by God made that choice. And ultimately, what do you have to do with that person? What would you do with somebody who refuses to follow God, wants to do wickedness, wants to continue in wicked ways? Ultimately, you have to separate them from the righteous, Right? And that's what the end of all of redemptive history is about. What the imprecatory prayers are basically is asking God to separate the wicked from the righteous for all eternity, to do his will. How do we understand, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock? What I understand is what I know, and that is that is a psalm inspired by God it is God's will to judge those uh, he doesn't say of a particular age. He will judge all who will be sinners and who will reject him. And so um, that's not a prayer we necessarily pray, but the tone of it is God separate the wicked from the righteous for all time. That is, a, that is our desperate prayer. So how does this fit into your prayer life? I think a, I think a really easy uh, application of this when you see somebody who is uh, <clears throat> recalcitrant who is railing against God there's two very simple things you can pray God how great would your mercy be if you would save that person but if you have chosen not to would you would you judge that person and would you glorify yourself in the torment that you will give rightly to that person and I know we dive into territory that we don't feel comfortable with because we think of uh, the love of God as somehow better than the wrath of God, right? But that's not true. The love of God is part of his goodness. The wrath of God is part of his goodness. We don't say there are parts of God that are better than others. That's heresy. God is God and everything he does is good. Hell is good in that it extols the mighty justice and wrath of God. And so is it appropriate to pray those things? You can't know for certain what God's will is for a certain person, but you can pray for grace. And if God will not show grace, then may he show wrath in all of his fury because it does glorify him. So um, I remember once in seminary, we had a prayer group every Tuesday and Thursday morning. And um, I happened to be there and we had a bunch of younger guys because I went to seminary a little later in life and I... Uh, there, there were some wicked things happening in our world and I prayed an imprecatory prayer and I heard one guy go, whoa, right in the middle of our prayer time because we don't think of doing that. But it's all over the place, 98 times in the Psalms. The Psalms are our example, so we balance that. Now don't go home now and say, I'm going to look at the newspaper and I'm going to pray all of these guys into hell. That, that's, that's what I'm going to do. No, how great would it be if horribly wicked people that we see in the news we see them in heaven because god graciously saved them but how great will it be when those who will not turn away from their sin 
face God at the great white throne judgment and we're there to see as the books are opened and every secret sin, every lie, every gossip, every slander, every hurt, every murder, um, the, the, the Clintons, another person that they didn't like found supposedly committing suicide in the last couple of weeks. All of it exposed and all of it judged. What will we in the stands, so to speak, be doing? I think we'll be cheering for the wrath of God because he is so righteous and so holy. And finally, every single event that we felt was unjust is called to account. Every single one. Does that glorify God? Absolutely. So the imprecatory prayers make certain that we understand that the wrath of God is part of his goodness, is part of his greatness, is part of why we are in awe of him. Um, so don't, don't go home and say, well, Pastor Steve likes to pray negative things. No, nope. we just pray the way the Psalms teach us to. What types of Psalms do we have? Let's move on to this. You have numbers of types. You have lament. I put that at the top of the list because there's more expressions of lament than expressions of praise. But the great thing about psalms of praise is that, that praise wins the day. Praise wins the day in terms of emphasis and, and conclusion. Almost always, psalms either begin or a psalm begins or ends on a positive note. You have a, a song of petition to bring relief and deliverance. You have situations where it, it seems like God has not kept his covenant promises. And you're, you're crying out to God. I mean, you think about Psalm 22, the Psalm of David that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a lament of the highest order. The cause of the distress sometimes is mentioned in the superscription. And sometimes the exact nature isn't, uh, of the trouble isn't specified. You know why I like those? The ones that aren't specified? Because we can relate to those very easily. Oh, this sounds like my situation. And we relate to that, that lament. And listen, I think one of the great things about laments is that it, it gives words to our pain and it lets it be okay to cry out to God. Um, there's a Christian myth that says you should never ask God why. Really? Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't looking for information. He already knew. What he was looking for was, was a listening ear. And ironically, when Jesus cried out to God, God had turned away from him in the sense of there was no grace in that moment. There was only wrath. When we cry out to God, why? That's not necessarily that we're questioning God. It just is that I don't understand. It's, it's like uh, the, the little kid when you give him the, I know this is a hot topic now, but if you give him an immunization uh, and he looks at you like, why are you doing this to me? Well, you have an answer. You have an answer for that. Not as good of an answer as we used to have, apparently, but that's a, a whole different topic. But you have an answer. Our why is, I don't understand the pain. All I see is this little slice of my life that just hurts so bad. And so laments are, are terrific. When you don't know what to pray, go to the lament psalms and just read them and pray them. There's various types of laments. You have the corporate lament. This is a whole group calling upon God. For relief, Psalm 94 is an example of a corporate lament. You have laments of the individual. They're a lot more common. They tend to be filled with very vivid imagery and pictures of, of pain and anguish. You have the penitential laments, songs asking for forgiveness. 
uh, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 90. Uh, Psalm 32, so beautiful in its, in its tenderness. If you don't know how to confess your sin, then read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. What does he mean? He means until I confessed my sin, I was wasting away inside. So they're so useful to us. And then you have, of course, the imprecatory prayers. Those are laments. They're prayers for judgment to fall on the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. Sometimes they make up a whole psalm. Psalm 109 is all imprecatory prayers. Why are those laments? Do you read the news? every day and just feel a sense of joy and happiness you you have a sense of lament you have a sense of injustice you have a sense of of just wishing you know oh god just one time can some liberal say something horrible and then fall off the stage and break his neck just once for my own entertainment that's all i'm asking for and we have that sense of of desperation for justice and the psalms of lament tell us don't worry justice is coming Maybe not in your lifetime, but it is coming. So those are the Psalms of Lament. Then you have the Psalms of Praise. That's how we generally think of Psalms. You have praises of the individual. Uh, There's deeply personal language here, but it can be sung by the assemblies. For example, the last few Psalms are meant for that. You have the praises then of the congregation, clearly used by the large congregation to aid in uh, regular worship in the tabernacle, Psalm 134, 35, 150, uh, the celebration at national festivals, 122, 124, 133. Um, These psalms were often sung in processions, sacrifices. Uh, They were sung as responses, as dramatic uh, reenactments. For example, Psalm 100 uh, this is the second passage I ever preached at Grace Bible Church, and I thought it was appropriate. But Psalm 100 is a song. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What was the purpose of Psalm 100? It was to be sung by the groups approaching Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate Passover, to celebrate the, uh, the other two festivals that were you came together. And the five major roads that led to Jerusalem as you got closer, you could hear the families and the clans singing Psalm 100 together. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, rather, in his courts with praise. What a tremendous way to, to come together. I, I don't know if we could ever do this, but I would love to have a funnel system where uh, before you ever walk into the building, you're handed a, a song sheet or a hymnal, and we just walk in singing together. Wouldn't that be cool to try that once or twice? But then your babies are crying. You have to go to the nursery, and there's some practical things. We understand that. Then there are the wisdom psalms. They're written in proverbial language. They often include words of blessing for those who follow God's law. You have the Psalms of Thanksgiving. I'm going to go a little faster now. Psalms of Thanksgiving. Uh, Psalm 100 is one of those. Give thanks to the Lord. Uh, that, that is one of those as well. And there, there's lots of overlap here. 
These are psalms of thanks that are sung after God has answered a lament. Now, here's an interesting pattern. You have a lament. God answers your prayer. You sing a psalm of thanksgiving. Or how about this sort of faith? You have a lament. God will answer your prayer. You sing a psalm of thanksgiving anyway. You have songs of remembrance. These are psalms that focus on God's great works in the past, primarily in Israel's history. 78, 70, or 77, 78, 105. You have songs of trust. They offer praise to God, but there's a greater emphasis on the personal trustworthiness of God. Uh, Psalm 27, uh, at the very end, I believe, says that I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's an expression of trust. So how do you trust God? Sometimes you got to say it out loud. That's how you trust him. I trust you. You have the royal songs. These are songs that celebrate the rule of God as king and, and the earthly kings that he's appointed to, to govern Israel. Um, they often contain uh, wedding language and enthronement language. Many of these have very clear overtones of Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 probably being the most obvious. Now, very few of the psalms fit neatly into one of those categories. You have lots of different flavors in different psalms. Um, For example, uh, Psalm 19 is about two-thirds wisdom psalm and one-third penitential psalm. And so you're not looking to make every psalm fit one category, but you're finding different flavors uh, in in them. And think of them as ingredients in in a stew, that this particular psalm, this stew has four ingredients to it, and you find those and look for those. And I find this very helpful. Um, I'm going to just speed up and finish here because we're, we're just about done. I'm going to give you a list of key psalms. I'm not going to read through all those, um, but you can get, the, you can get the, that list online on that slide. And I'll leave it there for just a moment. In just a minute, I'll move on to another slide that gives you uh, Messianic psalms. Messianic psalms are a big, 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 big study. Uh, there's a list of generally accepted messianic psalms, a couple of dozen of them or so. Um, That list has a lot of variations depending on the interpreter and the interpretation. Here's a simple rule of thumb. All the psalms are not messianic and some of the psalms are messianic. In other words, don't say that they all are, but don't say that none of them are. And so stick with the, the, the obvious ones and you'll be okay. Lots of variations to that list. So again, you can get this list on, online. I mean, I gave you a list of key psalms. I would say 1 through 150 would be the best ones to read. There's some of the Messianic psalms, if you want to write that down. How do you interpret the Messianic psalms? Uh, the narrowest interpretation are those that are clearly quoted or shown in the New Testament. That's a narrow way to interpret. Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted eight times in the New Testament. It is the most quoted verse in the New Testament and it is Messianic um, where the psalmist says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, speaking of Christ. So it's quoted eight times in the New Testament. So that's the narrowest way to interpret Messianic psalms. It has to be quoted or directly shown in the New Testament. The broader way is just anything vaguely Messiah-looking. And I think there's actually some merit to that because we know so much about Messiah that when you see, uh, for example, Psalm 24, uh, lift up your heads, O gates, the king is coming. You can't just say, oh, that's just speaking of an Israelite king. 
you would have to say that is speaking of a, an eternal king because of some of the, the things that we see here. He's called the king of glory. And the ESV takes an interpretive license here and capitalizes king as being Messiah. So, and that was pretty well acknowledged as a, as a messianic psalm. But anytime you see uh, things like, oh Lord, bless the king. Is that just speaking of David or the current king? No, it has to be speaking of Messiah also. So if you can take something from a psalm and basically there's two things you would do, you would say, first of all, not all of this fits into current history. So therefore it is in a different part of history, the future. And secondly, uh, if you can fit it into other things that we already know about Messiah's coming, then it's reasonable to say that this is at least a shadow and maybe even a prophecy of Messiah. So there's the Messianic Psalms. So how do you, um, how do you use the Psalms? Just give you three things to do. Don't forget the kingdom focus of Psalms. I've already talked about that. Psalms tell us what to do while we wait for, for the kingdom. You know, I think, uh, I think when you're around a brother or sister who's hurting and just is in pain, and they even say, I just don't know where to read. What do you do? Tell them, start in Psalm 1. And just live in the Psalms until you feel like being somewhere else. And I've seen this go on for two years. I've seen believers just say, I, I love the Word of God, but right now I just need Psalms. They're, they're, the, they're the future that I need to hang on to. We praise, we cry out for help, we rejoice, we wait expectantly. And then I want to just point out that it is instructive to us that the longest book of the Bible is a book of worship. That is what we're about. It is, uh, in fact, geographically, basically, it's the center of our Bible. It is a book of worship. And so, lest we think that um, worship is something that's supposed to be informal, that's supposed to be for me, that's supposed to be uh, something that's man-pleasing, I think you would come to a completely different conclusion from Psalms. I had to write a paper in seminary about what do we learn about leading a church worship service from Psalms alone. And that was a fascinating study for me. And what it did was it elevated my own view of worship and it put more fear in me and less man-centeredness in me. So um, we're kind of out of time, but we we have time for one or two quick questions on Psalms if if you have any. I know we did a lot. So start over on this side. Any questions on Psalms? We are completely comprehensive. I'll come back one more time. Any questions on this side? I gave you four extra seconds. All right. Well, you're probably going, it's a race to the restroom because there's 500 people here today. So let's, let's pray and then we'll be done. We'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you, Father, for giving us the words to praise you. We are sinners. We are inadequate. And yet, if we would open our Bibles and simply read to you a psalm, we are giving unto you perfect praise. What a gift. We thank you and praise you for this book of worship. We pray, Lord, that every person here, even this very week, would read and find comfort in the psalms. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.